Barian, Livingston, Van Buren, Barry, Cass, Livingston, Ingham, and Eaton. No, I did not just read you a list of counties under a tornado watch, but if you live in mid or southern Michigan, you've heard these names before. These eight names are heard during the summer fair time and weather watches. Michigangsters know these names in addition to two more, Jackson and Calhoun. And of course, we Michigangsters have heard these names and know these names because, of course, these are the names of Andrew Jackson's Presidential Cabinet Members. Welcome to Where They Stood, a podcast dedicated to Michigan history and morbidly amazing stories buried deep and not so deep in our family trees. I'm your long story long podcast host, Holly Kaur, and today's episode centers around our country's seventh president, a territory called Michigan trying to become a state, John Eaton, Andrew Jackson's Secretary of War, caught in a scandal, and Eaton trying to beat up Ingham? I hope you enjoy this one. Are you ready, dear listeners? Let's go. I want to start this episode giving you a rundown on Andrew, no middle name Jackson's life. My husband guessed his middle name was Andrew Mofo Jackson, but that would be incorrect. And he was also a second, Andrew Jackson II. So here's a bullet pointed list of sorts of Andrew Jackson's life. He was born on March 15, 1767. He was born in North Carolina, or South Carolina, or both. Apparently, he was born so close to the border in the Waxhaws that both states claim him, but Andrew always said he was from South Carolina. He was born in the United States to Irish parents, who along with his two brothers, Hugh and Robert, had all immigrated from Ireland two years before Andrew was born. His father, Andrew, 29 years old, died three weeks before Andrew's birth, leaving Elizabeth, his mother, to raise all three boys by herself with the help of nearby relatives. The nearby relatives were the Crawfords, Elizabeth's invalid sister Jane and her husband James. Elizabeth struck a deal with the wealthier Crawfords, Elizabeth would become a caretaker for her sister Jane in exchange for housing. Andrew was considered a guest. It wasn't his home. But Elizabeth Jackson was doing the absolute best she could. And Andrew loved his mama. I like her too. He once described his mother as gentle as a dove and as brave as a lioness. Elizabeth wanted Andrew to become a Presbyterian minister. However, he was a bit of a troublemaker who liked to swear, pull pranks, and get into fights. He said this of himself, quote, I was born for a storm, and a calm does not suit me, end quote. In 1779, the British invaded the Carolinas. You know, it was the Revolutionary War. Hugh Jackson, the eldest brother, joined the Revolutionary War to fight off the Redcoats, he died of heat stroke following the Battle of Stono Ferry that same year. Now, this story is just fascinating. 
I've read several accounts of it, so I'm going to try to give you the most complete version that I can. On April 10th, 1781, 14-year-old Andrew and his older brother Robert were captured by the British. They had signed up for the militia, but were obviously too young to fight. They were most likely errand boys or messengers. A Tory neighbor gave away their location to the British. And just a reminder, in case you forgot from your grade school days of history, a Tory was a colonist who was still loyal to Great Britain. Andrew and Robert had been hiding in the home of Thomas Crawford, a relative. And I'm keeping that very general. If you want to know the technicality, I think that Thomas was the brother of James, who was married to their invalid Aunt Jane, their mother's sister. But let's just say they were hiding in the home of a relative. According to the Women of History blog, quote, British dragoons, okay, pause, dragoons were originally a class of mounted infantry who used horses for mobility, but dismounted to fight on foot, per Wikipedia. Okay, back to the quote. British dragoons discovered the two and began to destroy the house, tearing apart furniture and breaking windows. The prisoners cowered in the living room until the British commander ordered Andrew to clean the mud from the soldiers' boots. End quote. And of course, Andrew submitted to the authority of the British soldiers, right? I mean, this would be in his character, right? Incorrect. Quote, Andrew refused, replying, Sir, I am a prisoner of war and claim to be treated as such. In an angry response, the soldier raised his sword and swung at the boy's head. Jackson managed to deflect part of the blow with his left hand, but he received a serious gash on his hand and another on his head. Two scars Andrew would bear for the rest of his life. When Robert also refused to clean the boots, he was sent staggering across the room by a blow from the officer's sword. End quote. Let's take a pause. All right. Do you have a $20 bill? Can I borrow it? No, really, if you have a $20 bill on you, check it out. Do you see a scar on Andrew's forehead? Because I don't see it. I mean, I know that he had one, and just because they didn't put it on the $20 bill doesn't mean that it was never there, but I just wondered if maybe they would be accurate in putting it on there. Kind of like those little Easter eggs that you find in movies and stuff, but... I don't see it, and I actually don't see it in actual photographs of him, you know, that have not been photoshopped. So I'm kind of wondering where the scar was. I do believe that it is there. I just don't see it. All right, keep that $20 bill out, okay? So Andrew got knifed by a jerk of a British officer, a dragoon. Then he and Robert were held prisoners in Camden, South Carolina. There, they both contracted smallpox. And what was their poor mother Elizabeth doing at this time? She was desperately arranging for her boys' release. She actually arranged a prisoner release. Thirteen redcoats for seven patriots, including the two very sick Jackson brothers. I love this woman. But poor Elizabeth. She finally had her boys. But things were going to get worse. Andrew walked the 40 miles back to their home, and he did this while still sick with smallpox. His mother and Robert rode in a wagon beside him. 
Two days after arriving back home, Robert succumbed to his illness. Elizabeth had now lost her husband and two of her sons. After Andrew got well, Elizabeth went right back to work. She wanted to help out other soldiers who were being held on prison ships in Charleston Harbor, and it was there that she contracted cholera. She was brought to Friends of the Family's home, where she was nursed, but then she eventually died. Andrew was not with her when she died, nor when she was buried. Relatives sent a small pile of her belongings to Andrew. Now, he was an orphan. His entire immediate family had died from war-related hardships. And who did he blame for that? The British. His mother was buried in an unmarked grave. He vowed to try to find her and have her reburied with his father and brothers. But for the rest of his life, he was never able to locate her remains. While Elizabeth was sick, she was able to write some words to her 14-year-old son. I'm really going to try not to fall apart while reading these. This is so good. I can't, (laughs) it's hard for me to believe that somebody that was so sick wrote this. And Andrew said that he kept these words his entire life and used them often to guide him because this was all he had left. Last words to her 14-year-old son by Elizabeth Hutchinson Jackson. Andrew, if I should not see you again, I wish you to remember and treasure up some things I have already said to you. In this world, you will have to make your own way. To do that, you must have friends. You can make friends by being honest, and you can keep them by being steadfast. You must keep in mind that friends worth having will, in the long run, expect as much from you as they give to you. To forget an obligation or be ungrateful for a kindness is a base crime, not merely a fault or a sin, but an actual crime. Men guilty of it sooner or later must suffer the penalty. In personal conduct, be always polite, but never obsequious. This means excessive eagerness to please, fawning, ingratiating, kind of like sucking up. None will respect you more than you respect yourself. Avoid quarrels as long as you can without yielding to imposition, but sustain your manhood always. Never bring a suit in law for assault and battery or for defamation. The law affords no remedy for such outrages that can satisfy the feelings of a true man. Never wound the feelings of others. Never brook wanton outrage upon your own feelings. If you ever have to vindicate your feelings or defend your honor, do it calmly. If angry at first, wait till your wrath cools before you proceed. Andrew was orphaned at the age of 14. His family of five was just down to one. He was left in the care of some relatives, but he was pretty much on his own. And we're talking about the future president of the United States. Wow. He inherited a modest amount of money from his grandfather in Ireland. He spent it all. He hated school, but briefly taught school. He hated studying, but studied law, you know, on his own, and then apprenticed with lawyers in North Carolina at age 21. Thehermitage.com described him at this time as, quote, tall and lanky, with red hair and piercing blue eyes, known for his fiery temper, fearlessness, 
playful personality and daring spirit. End quote. He also, quote, gained a reputation for being charismatic, wild, and ambitious. He loved to dance, entertain, gamble, and spend his free time with friends in taverns. End quote. In 1788, he moved to Nashville to start his country music career. Just kidding. He did a whole bunch of stuff, though. He did some lawyering, he was a district attorney, and he opened his own law office. He also killed Charles Dickinson in a duel. Now, please don't confuse Charles Dickinson with Charles Dickens, author of A Christmas Carol, A Tale of Two Cities, and Oliver Twist. Charles Dickinson and Andrew Jackson got into an argument over a horse race, and then Charles made some yucky comments about Andrew's new wife, Rachel. Ah, Rachel. Rachel, Rachel, Rachel. Her name was Rachel Donaldson Robards. When Andrew moved to Nashville, he boarded with a woman named Rachel Stockley Donaldson. That Rachel had a daughter named Rachel, and Andrew was smitten. He loved Rachel, uh, the daughter, immediately. Problem. She was married. Solution. She had left her husband, who was jealous and cruel. She was awaiting word of her divorce when she met Andrew. In 1788, Andrew and Rachel were married in Mississippi. Uh, okay. And not just Mississippi, but almost to the border of Louisiana, like eight hours away by car from Nashville. Andrew was involved in politics and bought some land, lost a bunch of money in a national financial panic, and, oop, found out his wife Rachel was actually still legally married to her first husband. No. It was a pretty complicated situation. Rachel was accused of bigamy and adultery. But listen, communication was just crap back then, and so many things were complicating the divorce process, like Tennessee becoming a state, and then the divorce papers had to be refiled, and blah, 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 blah. She actually thought she was divorced. But she wasn't, and then her husband that she was legally married to got to sue her for divorce calling her bigamous and an adulteress. And so did a lot of other people. They said really bad things about her. She was finally granted a divorce, and Andrew and Rachel were married, again, legally this time, in 1794 in Nashville. Andrew built a mansion near Nashville called the Hermitage, and he even bought some slaves. Like over a hundred slaves. In his lifetime, he owned 300 slaves. Ew. Bad. Bad Andrew Jackson. He was involved in politics and fought in the War of 1812. He became a national hero during the Battle of New Orleans. He was involved in other wars as well. And there's a lot of other stuff going on here too, but we're just trying to hit some of the major points. In 1824, he ran against John Quincy Adams for the presidency and lost. In 1828, he ran against John Quincy Adams for the presidency and won. This time around, he campaigned for the job. This was the first modern-day-looking campaign with so much mudslinging. The worst, malicious, horrible mudslinging. And a lot of it was about his wife. Now, this story comes to us from the podcast, History That Doesn't Suck, done by Professor Greg Jackson. 
this is one of my favorite podcasts because it's informative, funny, and has plenty of 1980s references to fill this 80s girl's heart. Also, the podcast doesn't suck. Anyhow, in episode 28, Professor Gregg shares this story about Rachel Jackson. In 1828, Rachel went shopping in downtown Nashville. She had to purchase some new clothes because she was going to be traveling to Washington, D.C. as the First Lady. This apparently was not something she was excited about doing. She hadn't been feeling well, and she was suffering the recent loss of her and Andrew's adopted teenage son, Lincoya Jackson. She was depressed, exhausted, and she was also having heart palpitations and shortness of breath. She decided to stop into the newspaper office where one of her relatives worked. Sitting on a desk, she noticed a leaflet written about her, Rachel. It was a leaflet that was countering slander from John Quincy Adams' supporters about Rachel. Horrible things were written about her. They compared her to Jezebel from the Bible. Rachel was gutted. She collapsed in a corner of the room in sobs. She was so broken, and she vowed to never move to Washington, D.C., and she did not. She kept that promise. Because then, she died. She didn't die right there on the spot. And her maladies began somewhere around 1825. But seeing these things written about herself, bigamous, adulterous, malicious lies she had been somehow shielded from during the campaign, while all of this exacerbated her already weak state. She had a heart attack on December 22, 1828, and died. Andrew Jackson was beyond crushed and grieved his beloved wife. He actually clung to her corpse and had to be physically removed from Rachel. He had her buried in the soft white satin gown she had planned to wear to his inauguration. Andrew turned his wrath on John Quincy Adams and Andrew's other political enemies, stating at Rachel's funeral, May God Almighty forgive her murderers. I never can. He traveled to Washington, D.C. alone. Sort of. Because he and Rachel never had children of their own, they adopted two orphaned, indigenous boys, although one of them had just died, and really that's a whole other story. Andrew also brought along Rachel's nephew John and John's wife Emily. Emily Donaldson will act as First Lady. For a while. She would eventually be asked to step down in that role. But that's for a little bit later in this episode. Let's pause for a moment. I'll do a little stretch. All right. Now you might be asking yourself, what does this have to do with Michigan and Eaton County? Holly, get to the point. Well, to that one person asking that question, we have actually arrived to the point. Doesn't it look beautiful? To the rest of you who also love learning about presidents, you are so welcome. March 1829, Andy moved into the White House. The story you may have heard about how he opened up the White House to the public and they trashed it, it's true. Thousands of dollars in damages to the newly rebuilt home of the president. But the new president didn't have time to personally do the cleanup. He was assembling his government people. The boys. 
and of course he picked the most qualified men to sit in his cabinet. No, no, he did not. He chose his political allies, men that may not have had a clue as to what they were doing. Here they are, and what they were in charge of. U.S. Postmaster General William T. Barry. U.S. Attorney General John M. Berrien. U.S. Secretary of the Navy John Branch. U.S. Vice President John C. Calhoun. The Second Secretary of War Louis Cass. Secretary of War John Eaton. U.S. Secretary of the Treasury Samuel D. Ingham. And Second Secretary of State. Edward Livingston. I forgot one. U.S. Secretary of State, later Vice President and then President, Martin Van Buren. Ah, are you seeing it yet? The point? Let's talk about the state of Michigan now. There was no state of Michigan in 1828. It was a territory trying to become a state. Oh, and it was trying so hard. Almost too hard. Oh, what was that word that Andrew Jackson's mother used in her last words to her boy? Obsequious, meaning excessive eagerness to please, fawning, ingratiating, sucking up. Yeah, that's what Michigan was doing, trying to impress a bunch of people in Washington, D.C. to become a state. And why did the territory of Michigan have to impress people back in Washington, D.C.? Yes, let's discuss. In order for Michigan to become a state, it had some homework to do. Assignment 1. At least 60,000 people had to live in the territory. Assignment 2. A constitution for the state had to be written and delegates selected. Assignment 3. No more fighting with Ohio. Well, whoa now. Ohio? Why would Michigan ever be fighting with Ohio? I mean, you know, football, I get that, but this is back in 1828. In the early days of Michigan trying to become the 26th state to join the Union, a surveyor included Toledo, Ohio as part of Michigan. Man, did this royally piss off the Ohio congressman. According to Michigan.gov, the Ohioans... Ohioans? Ohioans were screaming, offsides. The fight over the Toledo Strip was on. In 1829, the territory of Michigan, led by Lewis Cass, who was governor of Michigan Territory at the time, wanted to win support to their side of this custodial war over the Toledo Strip of land. So they, the council, whomever was also serving at the time for Michigan, came up with a great way to try to win federal approval in Washington, D.C. Name counties after the cabinet members. Suck-ups. Let's return to that list of men and the counties named after Andrew Jackson's cabinet. Barry County, named after Postmaster General William T. Barry. Berrien County, U.S. Attorney General John M. Berrien. Branch County, U.S. Secretary of the Navy John Branch. Calhoun County, for Vice President John C. Calhoun, Cass County, for Secretary of War Lewis Cass, also probably because he was like the first governor of Michigan when it was still a territory. So he was actually the second Secretary of War. Eaton County, named for Secretary of War John Eaton, 
Ingham County, named after the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, Samuel D. Ingham. Jackson County, named for Andrew Jackson himself. Livingston County, named for Jackson's second Secretary of State, Edward Livingston. And then Van Buren County, for the U.S. Secretary of State, later Vice President and then President, Martin Van Buren. Obsequious much, Michigan? But it didn't work. The fighting continued over the Toledo Strip. The congressmen from Ohio blocked Michigan territory from becoming a state in 1833. And now, there was a new sheriff in town. Well, not a sheriff, a governor. Lewis Cass was out, and a feisty 22-year-old Stevens T. Mason was in. In as acting governor. Stevens T. Mason. Ever heard of Mason, Michigan? It's near Lansing. It's the cutest little town that's located on top of an esker. You can either look that word up, or you can stay tuned to future episodes. It was almost Michigan's capital city, too. Anyhow, this controversy over the strip of land was about to get crazy. I'm just going to read to you from Michigan.gov. They tell it pretty well. Quote, and it's a long one, but a good one. Quote, the controversy heated up again when Michigan saw admission to the Union on December 11, 1833. In spite of Michigan's presence in the Toledo Strip, Ohio congressmen successfully lobbied to block Michigan's acceptance as a state until it agreed to Ohio's version of the boundary. Massachusetts Representative and former President John Quincy Adams, remember who hates John Quincy Adams, by the way? It's Jackson. Andrew Jackson, the President of the United States. Mr. Jackson, if you're nasty. Back to the quote. John Quincy Adams supported Michigan, saying, Never in the course of my life have I known a controversy of which all the right so clearly on one side and all the power so overwhelmingly on the other. Continuing on with this long quote. Ohio's position was so strong that Ohio Governor Robert Lucas refused to negotiate with Michigan over the issue. Michigan's Territorial Council countered by passing a resolution that would impose heavy fines on anyone other than Michigan or federal officers trying to exercise jurisdiction in the Toledo Strip. In a blatant act of defiance, Ohio Governor Lucas turned the disputed region into a county named after himself and appointed a sheriff and judge. (laughs) Michigan's boy governor had had enough. Stevens T. Mason mobilized his troops and headed towards Ohio. The Toledo War had begun. Okay, we're still going with this long quote from Michigan.gov. All right. The war involved more saber-rattling and one-upsmanship than it did shooting and bloodletting. For instance, after the Ohio legislature voted to approve a $300,000 military budget, Michigan upped the ante by approving one with $315,000. So $15,000 more. Michigan's militia did end up arresting some Ohio officials, capturing nine surveyors and firing a few shots over the heads of others as they ran out of the area. I can only envision this. Oh, my gosh. But only Ohio inflicted any casualties when a Buckeye named Two Stickney, 
that's his name, T-W-O, like the number two, Stickney, stabbed a Michigan sheriff during a tavern brawl. Oh my gosh, things were pretty heated. When President Andrew Jackson stepped in, the war ended. Jackson removed Mason from office and the militia commander, General Joseph W. Brown, disbanded his troops. But Congress still held Michigan statehood hostage until it agreed to Ohio's claims. Now this next move by Michigan, I just love it. (laughs) The citizens of Michigan set up a state government anyway and elected Stevens T. Mason governor. Michigan eventually became the 26th state of the Union on the 26th of January, 1837. But its territory did not include the Toledo Strip. Instead, it gained title to the western three-quarters of the Upper Peninsula as compensation. 9,000 square miles of the most valuable timber, iron, and copper country in America. Like so many of the gridiron battles that continue to rage today, a game isn't decided on one play but a series of plays. Poor officiating may have taken Michigan officially out of the campaign for the Toledo Strip, but in retrospect, it's obvious who won the war. End quote. Whoa, that was a lot. And all of that came from us, Michigan.gov. We won the war. You can have Toledo. We have the UP. But I've actually only been there once. Anyway, finally, finally, Michigan was a state. It was one of Andrew Jackson's last acts in office as president. But we have to back up again and talk about John Eaton and the Petticoat Affair. John Eaton was born in North Carolina into a prominent political family. The family relocated to Tennessee where John Eaton went into lawyering. That sounds sort of familiar, right? Like Andrew Jackson's life? He served in the War of 1812 and became an aide to Andrew Jackson. He was married to his first wife, Myra Lewis, in 1813, but she died. He was then elected to the U.S. Congress at the age of 28 years, 4 months, and 21 days old, and holds the record for being the youngest elected senator. Take that tidbit to your DJ trivia nights. He was elected to the Senate even though he didn't meet the required age of 30. While serving in the Senate, he married Margaret O'Neill Timberlake, a widow with three young children. Most everyone in the history of history refers to her as Peggy, but according to her autobiography, quote, I never was called Peggy in all my life. I was ordinarily called by my proper name of Margaret. End quote. People called her Peggy despite her somehow, but I'm going to call her Margaret. Let's start with the backstory. Margaret's parents owned the Franklin House, which was a hotel with a bar in Washington, D.C., and it was like the place to hang out. From a young age, pretty Margaret, it would sound so much better to say pretty Peggy, but oh well, would entertain the guests, drunk and sober alike, with tunes on the piano. She was well-educated, quite funny, and tongues began wagging for her. She was pretty Peggy, pretty Margaret. Men wanted her attention, and women liked to talk about the attention. Margaret's reputation was already being scrutinized. In 1816, at the age of 17, she married 39-year-old John B. Timberlake, 
great-great-great-grandfather of Justin Timberlake. Just kidding. Perhaps they are related, but not directly, because Margaret and John B. Timberlake, their son died when he was really young, so that name would not have kept going. Timberlake was an alcoholic and deeply in debt. He and Margaret had three children, one boy who died young, and two girls. Margaret's father, William O'Neill, owner of the hotel Franklin House, gave the couple a home directly across from the hotel. The couple were still often hanging out at the popular hotel, and it was there that the Timberlakes met and became friends with a newly elected senator, 28-year-old widower from Tennessee named John Eaton. John Eaton, who was still single, still young, good-looking, rich, accomplished, and friends with the President of the United States, wanted to help out his new friends, the Timberlakes. He went so far as to pass a resolution in Congress to help pay off the debt Timberlake accrued during his time in the Navy. Then, the ever-so-helpful John Eaton helped Timberlake get a new lucrative job, which required Timberlake to be stationed in the Mediterranean Sea, which meant Timberlake would be away from his wife and family for long periods of time. Hey, John Eaton, that was really helpful, but this might be a bad look. Hanging out with the young, beautiful, and popular wife of a man you just sent away for four years? Anyhow, Timberlake set sail on a four-year voyage in 1828, but died at sea. Peggy, I mean Margaret, bucked the societal norm of waiting at least a year to remarry. Instead, she waited just nine months. And married? John Eaton, of course, on January 1st, 1829. Oh, tongues were flying off people's faces. The scandal. Some even started a rumor that John Eaton had Timberlake sent on the four-year voyage, and that Timberlake committed suicide knowing his wife was being kept warm at night by the fiery John Eaton. No, Timberlake did not commit suicide. An autopsy was done at the time of his death, and he died of pneumonia. But the truth didn't stop the hate. A month after his marriage to Margaret, John Eaton was appointed to Secretary of War by Andrew Jackson, and the wives of the other cabinet members turned their noses up at the new Mrs. Margaret Peggy Eaton. Let the snubbing begin. See, back in the day, you called on someone using a card or something, and that was delivered to that person, and then that person either accepted the card, you came over, had tea or whatever, and then you left. The accepted high society thing to do next was send an invite back to the first caller in return, but see, try as she might, Margaret might get an accepted invite into someone's house, but then the other woman would not step foot into that harlot's home. All of this was referred to as the petticoat affair. John Eaton and his new wife were purposefully not invited to parties and balls held at other cabinet members' homes. That was how much the other wives detested Margaret. And Andrew Jackson had had enough. He remembered how his precious wife, Rachel, had been treated. He demanded an end to the Mean Girls drama, but it continued on. One of the women snubbing Mrs. Eaton? Andrew's own first lady, his nephew's wife, Emily Donaldson. 
After Andrew's first term, Emily was asked to get her shit together like an adult or just not come back to Washington, D.C. She chose not to come back. Dude. This snubbing of Margaret Eaton, believe it or not, had significant impact on Jackson's presidency, and it went on for three years. With cabinet members arguing, Jackson couldn't get a lot done. And actually, he didn't rely on these people much anyhow. He eventually formed his own little group of advisors he sought for advice, people that wouldn't have wives that would get involved in anything, and they were known as the kitchen cabinet. But these actions by these cabinet wives caused a political fallout for some of the men. John C. Calhoun's wife, Floride, was asked to play nice by Andrew Jackson. She refused. So Andy began to favor Martin Van Buren. <laughs> Want to know why? He was a widower. His wife was dead. Do you know how this played out? John C. Calhoun's political life would fizzle out, and Martin Van Buren ended up becoming the next president of the United States. Now, in trying to understand through a historical lens, I found this quote. Historian John F. Oh yeah, I am never going to get this name right. Marzalik? Marzalik? Marzalik explained his view of the real reasons Washington society found Margaret unacceptable. Quote, she did not know her place. She forthrightly spoke up about anything that came to her mind, even topics of which women were supposed to be ignorant. She thrust herself into the world in a manner inappropriate for a woman. Accept her, and society was in danger of disruption. Accept this uncouth, impure, forward, worldly woman, and the wall of virtue and morality would be breached and society would have no further defenses against the forces of frightening change. Whoa. Sorry, I just had a moment because I think that's what a lot of people think and why they reject change. Because they see this wall of virtue and morality being breached, and society is going to come crumbling down. Sorry, back to the quote. Margaret Eaton was not that important in herself, it was what she represented that constituted the threat. Proper women had no choice. They had to prevent her acceptance into society as part of their defense of that society's morality. End quote. Author John Meacham points out that Margaret Eaton's life was unusual for its time. She was, according to Meacham, by her own account, an outgoing flirt. Her tongue was ungoverned and ungovernable. End quote. He also points out that she craved attention. Another quote. At various points in her life, she was courted by a general, a major, and a captain, which delighted her. End quote. And guess what? Margaret actually agreed with these accounts. She wrote an autobiography that was not published until after her death. In it, Margaret admitted to the accuracy of some of the characterizations of her. Quote, The fact is, I never had a lover who was not a gentleman and was not in a good position in society. I must have said some great many foolish things. I am sure I did very few wise ones. I was foolish, hasty, but not vicious. End quote. Refusing to defend herself directly, Margaret Eaton expressed her opinion of her critics this way. 
Quote, I was quite as independent as they and had more powerful friends. None of them had beauty, accomplishments, or graces in society of any kind, and for these reasons, they were jealous of me. End quote. This whole petticoat affair was more than just about a woman who just didn't know her place or didn't think before she spoke. It was more about power and the growing rivalry between Andrew Jackson and his vice president, John C. Calhoun. Calhoun's wife was one of the main offenders in this affair. Some believe she was encouraged by her husband to act this way so that he could gain political favor and become the next president of the United States. Martin Van Buren elected to resign his position in support of John Eaton. Remember what I told you about Martin Van Buren? He was safe from all of this gossip because his wife was dead. He didn't have a wife involved in this giant mess, so he was able to side with Eaton and Jackson. By resigning his position, Martin Van Buren gave Andrew Jackson an open door to reorganize his cabinet and ask for resignations. Only Postmaster William T. Berry remained in his role, and Jackson reorganized the cabinet. Now, if you're from Michigan and live in one of these counties, you're going to love this next part. (laughs) Now, this is according to Wikipedia, but I also found the story from a different, reliable source. I just like the way that uh, the Wikipedia version is laid out. So this is really great. And yep, this is just going to be giant quote. On June 17th, the day before John Eaton formally resigned as Secretary of War, a text appeared in the Telegraph stating that it had been proved that the families of Ingham, Branch, and Attorney General John M. Berrien had refused to associate with Mr. Eaton. Eaton wrote to all three men demanding that they answer for the article. Ingham sent back a contemptuous letter stating that, while he was not the source for the article, the information was still true. On June 18th, Eaton challenged Ingham to a duel through his second. Hold up. Let me explain what a second is for a a second. And actually, I got this info from owlcation.com. Whatever that is. People involved in duels also chose seconds or people to accompany them to the duel to make sure it was legitimate. Oftentimes, seconds also found themselves acting as peacemakers to a duel making sure if shots were fired, they weren't fired at other people. A second is someone you trust, you appoint them to go to the challenge party, sometimes try to work out the peace. Okay, anyways, John Eaton selected his brother-in-law, Dr. Philip G. Randolph, who visited Ingham twice and threatened him the second time with personal harm if he did not comply with Eaton's demands. (laughs) Randolph was dismissed, and the next morning, Ingham sent a note to Eaton discourteously declining the invitation. It described Eaton's situation as one of pity and contempt. Eaton wrote a letter back to Ingham accusing him of cowardice. Ingham was then informed that Eaton, Randolph, and others were looking to assault him. He gathered together his own bodyguard and was not immediately molested. However, he reported that for the next two nights, Eaton and his men continued to lurk about his dwelling and threaten him. <laughs> oh, sorry. It was probably a very serious situation. I just am envisioning these men, and I live in these counties, and it's just bizarre. Ingham then left the city and returned safely to his home. Ingham communicated to Jackson his version of what took place, and Jackson then asked Eaton to answer for the charge. 
Eaton admitted it. He admitted that he passed by the place where Ingham had been staying, but at no point attempted to enter or besiege it. The end. (laughs) And I guess the matter was finally dropped. John Eaton went on to become the governor of Florida Territory and then the U.S. minister to Spain. He died November 17, 1856, at age 66, never having visited the county in Michigan named after him. Eaton County, Michigan. Margaret Eaton remarried three years after her husband's death, but the next husband was a loser, stole her money, and they divorced. She died November 8, 1879, at age 79, broke. We are going to end this episode by discussing just a few more things about Andrew Jackson's presidency in life. Let's really quick touch on the Indian Removal Act. There could be a whole episode about this or a whole podcast, but I'm just going to say that Andrew Jackson thought he was being a good parent to the Native Americans by moving them out of the land that they had always lived, and he did it in the most inhumane way, forcing them to walk there. What the hell, man? We all know that the path taken by these Native people was covered in death, around 4,000 souls lost, on what we know as the Trail of Tears. Also, the Supreme Court actually sided with the Cherokee Nation, but Georgia and Andrew Jackson ignored the ruling. Next up, I want to talk to you about that $20 bill you still have in your hand. Remember that? I asked you to keep it out. Well, just so you know, our seventh president of these United States, Andrew, I don't play that Jackson, did not, in fact, want or like paper money. He despised the idea. He thought that paper money was not real money and signed an executive order stating that federal land could only be purchased with hard money like silver or gold. Yeah. So how rude of our government to put this man's face on the $20 bill. Let's protest. Please send me all of your 20s and I'll send them back to the government for you and demand silver and gold in return. Also, just so you know, replacing Andrew Jackson's face with Harriet Tubman's on the $20 bill is not another one of those woke examples. Andrew Jackson would be having a fit knowing his picture was on the $20 bill, and he would probably challenge someone to a duel. Speaking of duels, Andrew Jackson participated in many of them, somewhere between 10 and 100. As I mentioned earlier, he shot and killed a man, Charles Dickinson. This almost ruined his life, like his reputation. During Andrew's second term as president, an attempt was made on Andrew's life. According to Senate.gov, on a cold, wet January day in 1835, an unemployed house painter named Richard Lawrence hid behind a pillar at the entrance to the Capitol Rotunda. He awaited the arrival of an important Capitol visitor, President Andrew Jackson, who was attending a congressional funeral. As the president approached, Lawrence stepped forward, raised a some kind of a gun, you guys probably know this, a a Derringer single-shot pistol took careful aim at Jackson's heart and fired. The cap exploded. Noise and smoke filled the air, but the powder failed to ignite. 
misfire. The aging president was in ill health, forced to lean on a colleague and use a cane, but he remained defiant. As Lawrence pulled a second pistol and again took aim, Jackson charged his assailant with his cane held high. So like he was beating this guy with his cane. Lawrence pulled the trigger. Again, misfire. Quickly, bystanders tackled the would-be assassin to the floor while the president was hustled away. Jackson was saved from the first known attempt to assassinate a U.S. president. Andrew Jackson died on June 8, 1845. His funeral, of course, was a stately affair. People cried, dried their eyes at the passing of Old Hickory. But apparently the large crowd of people gathered had upset someone also present. It was Andrew Jackson's pet bird, an African gray parrot named Pal, who became so riled up during the funeral that it began to swear. Volume 3 of Andrew Jackson and Early Tennessee History cites Reverend William Menifee Normant, who presided at Jackson's funeral. This is what he said. Quote, Before the sermon and while the crowd was gathering, a wicked parrot that was a household pet got excited and commenced swearing so loud and long as to disturb the people and had to be carried from the house. Reverend Norman goes on to say that the presidential parrot was excited by the multitude and let loose perfect gusts of cuss words. People were horrified and awed at the bird's lack of reverence. End quote. A swearing parrot. Because, of course, Andrew Jackson would own a parrot he taught to swear. Wasn't that the absolute perfect way to send off the commander-in-chief? That is the end of this episode about the Cabinet Counties of Michigan and a brief, and not so brief, list of events that happened during Andrew Jackson's life. As Professor Greg from History That Doesn't Suck explains, Andrew Jackson was a walking contradiction, as I think we all can be at times. His life is one of the most fascinating stories of coming from virtually nothing and rising to the presidency, although plenty of mistakes were made. I truly think it was the love of his mother poured into him and those last wise words that guided him to the office, and also the love of Rachel that sustained him. As for his aide, friend, and first Secretary of War, John Eaton, in the Cabinet Counties, now you know how so many of Michigan's counties, perhaps even the county you live in, got their names. My sources today, well, there were just so many. I posted them all on my Buzzsprout page. I still don't have an actual website yet. I actually had to reach out to one of the websites for a correction to Samuel D. Ingham's name. The person had it as Ingram. He immediately wrote me back and thanked me and said he would correct it ASAP. Also, big thanks to one of my favorite podcasts, History That Doesn't Suck, and the host, Professor Greg Jackson. Check that out when you get a chance. Now it's time for the segment called Oops, I'm Stupid Again, but instead of trying to pick from my many stupid stories, I thought I would just tell you how this podcast is going so far. This was episode 11, although it is technically 12, 13 if you count the intro episode. I had recorded a personal story of my own that I was going to release last week, and I still may eventually release it. We'll see. 
but I think things are going pretty well. This podcast is so much more difficult to do with my kids at home during the summer, but I didn't want to take a break. I wanted to keep going to get at least 20 episodes, and it seems to be taking forever. I love the story ideas. I love doing the research. I love the writing and the editing, but I don't really like the recording. It's pretty stressful. And then even though I practice out loud, I always want to make changes when I'm done recording. So going back in with voice edits is just the worst. And trying to learn how to make it all sound professional. (laughs) Yeah, not great. But the thing is, people are listening. I don't know why, but they are. And I get funny little messages or texts from so many of you referencing an episode. It really does make me smile. I've only had one scathing review, and it was a dark cloud for like two weeks. I read it once and deleted it, but it still seemed to follow me around. Why can't people just say, yeah, that one wasn't my favorite and leave it at that? That one negative review almost made me quit, because we as humans can hear so much positive, but all of our attention will zoom in on one fault. However, y'all that have reached out and shared my podcast have covered over that one negative. So thank you for that. Seriously. Thank you for all of the encouragement, because putting myself out there is scary. I'm still learning. I'll still make mistakes. But I still have stories to share, and I hope you'll listen, and I hope you'll enjoy. I also wanted to thank Eaton County Historical Society and Sarah Grusbeck. I have some fun events coming up. There is the Maple Hill Cemetery Tour in October, where I get to play Zella Bell Wheaton. Also in October, I will be part of the Eaton County Historical Society Happy Hour held at Center Eaton Church. See, this podcast has opened so many doors and allowed me to do something for me. Use that research and writing for good, not evil. More details will be coming up soon, and I hope you can make both of those events. So anyhow, a giant thank you to all of you, and I hope you stick with me during this really cool chapter of my life. And I hope you'll join me in about two-ish weeks for another episode of Where They Stood.